In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that our friends at MailChimp are doing this thing called Buy the Books. It's a virtual book festival. It's going now through the end of the summer, and uh, there's just so much there for you to check out. It's curated by uh, the authors of Big Friendship, who were on the show a couple weeks ago, Ami So and Ann Friedman. They have brought together a whole group of incredible authors who are having conversations in part about what it's like to write in this particular moment, what it's like to launch books in this particular moment. The conversations are stupendous. There's several former guests of long form who are taking part in that. Another former guest of long form, Ashley C. Ford, has curated a collection of essays for Buy the Books. Those are super, super powerful. Lots of writers that you know and love there. And then Aaron and I have done a little uh, podcast where we're talking to more writers about the books that changed their lives in some foundational, monumental way. Those conversations have been really, really fun to have a, uh, a bright spot amidst all this. So go check it out. Buy the books. It's at MailChimp.com slash presents. There's a ton there for you to check out. But for now, check out this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm speaking to my co-hosts Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky from a field in the middle of a storm because my power is out. Hello. Hello, sir. Aaron, I'm, I'm imagining you in like a windbreaker just saying like, the speeds are really picking up, Max. I'm I'm seeing a lot of debris. Uh, it's basically it's it's basically that the tree has come down my yard. Uh, I think everything's going to be okay, though. And I'm very excited uh, to tell you about the show this week, uh, which I talked to Jenny Kleeman, who is a British journalist, podcaster, documentary filmmaker. She's on the radio. She does many things. Uh, she has a new book out called Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, which expands on some of the uh, longer kind of magazine style features she's done for Guardian Longreads. Uh, yeah, great show. Very glad to have her. That's a good guest. Good guess. Good book name. You were breaking up a tiny bit, Aaron. So just so people can hear that clearly, it's Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. Yes. Book's called Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. We are brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. I'm just getting it all out here, Max. Do it. I could lose you at any time. MailChimp, great place. Newsletters. Work even when your internet's down. I probably just picked up some on my phone as I walked across this field. Check them out. They make this show possible. Thanks to them. Aaron, seek shelter. I will. I will. Stay safe out there, man. Guys, my last wish is that you that you release this podcast. (laughs) Well, here it is. Aaron Lammer with Jenny Kleeman. Welcome, Jenny Kleeman. Thank you very much for having me. I've been listening to this podcast for many, many years, and it's incredibly exciting to be on it myself. Um, I'm curious, 
what path led you to journalism in the first place? Oh, that's a good question, because there's the path that led me to journalism, and then there's the path that led me to the journalism that I'm doing now. And those are two kind of slightly different things. But the path that led me to journalism, honestly, is that when I was growing up, I really wanted to be in a band. I wanted to be a musician. And I played the guitar and I had a bunch of computers that I was using to record myself. And it had this kind of very romantic notion of that I was going to be a rock star. Uh, I wasn't very good. And so I thought I've got to find a career that fits in with my music. And so I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to go and freelance and be able to work certain days a week making money as a journalist. This was back in the days when that was possible to make money as a journalist but it will be a career that allows me to do my music. Uh, and then I think fortunately for the world, my music didn't happen, but my journalism did. My journalism turned out to be a lot better than my music. What, uh, at what point in that journey did you come to the conclusion that your music wasn't very good? And when did you realize you were pretty good at the journalism part of it? <laughs> I didn't put a lot of music out. This was kind of before YouTube, before MySpace even. And so fortunately, my music isn't out there, which is a really good thing because it would kind of be embarrassing if it came up to bite me. But uh, I wasn't producing enough stuff. I was doing lots of weird things on my computer late at night at home. And when I played it to people, people were being very kind, but clearly it it wasn't really going to go anywhere. And then I took a few jobs here and there. I worked in television for a little bit. Uh, Graham Norton, who's a chat host here in the UK. I was a researcher on his TV program for a bit. And then I did some work experience at The Guardian. I got some shifts working on a section of The Guardian called The Editor that used to exist at the time, where you look at what the coverage of the main stories has been in the other papers and what other columnists are saying. So that was really good grounding in terms of learning about different kinds of journalism, different kinds of outlets, different kinds of commentators. I got to learn while I was still working about what kinds of things work. But I I always loved, more than anything else, growing up, my parents used to always buy big stacks of newspapers. And I loved the big meaty magazines that had uh, long form features in them and good 4,000, 5,000 word pieces. And I would, when I was a kid, I would I've got three sisters and there would be a competition in the morning for who would get the best spot in my parents' bed to sit and read the papers or sit and hang out all together. And I used to set my alarm early so that I could go and get to that spot in between my parents and get to the newspapers first and sit and get absorbed in the warm bath of these lovely long features. So I always dreamed of doing that, but it took a very long time to actually get there. But eventually some good people um, took some chances on me. In the time period we're talking about, in America, you could do that kind of work at many, many different magazines and very many, many niches. And from what I've heard from British writers, the the number of places where you could write a four or 5,000 word feature are pretty narrow. There's less overall outlets that were doing that kind of thing. Did you know anyone who actually did that work? Like, at what point did you jump from a kid fighting for that section of the newspaper to actually knowing people who had taken that career path and maybe could put you on that career path? I never knew anybody. And to this day, I still feel massively out of the loop as far as newspapers go and print journalism goes. Um, I just 
would come up with a bunch of ideas and ring up switchboards and say, you know, who commissions features on this section and send them emails. And for a long time, I had people say, you know, that's very nice, go away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But eventually I got some shorter features. I wrote some things with Time Out in London. I had good ideas. This was the thing. And, And at the same time as doing this, I carried on doing this television work and I had some television reporting gigs but I never really got to do the stories that I wanted to do in television whenever I pitched the sort of things that I'm really interested in people would say oh that's a great idea you know you should send that to Louis Theroux's people or you know that sounds like the sort of documentary John Ronson would make and nobody saw me doing them so I found myself pursuing the ideas I really wanted to do in print. And at first that was through emailing a bunch of people who kept saying no. But eventually I realized that if I approached people with the access already in place, then they kind of had to take me with my idea and they had to do it. And some people, I was very fortunate that the Guardian's Weekend magazine, which is like their big Saturday magazine, in 2010 they let me write a long feature. And I think they were quite kind of suspicious they weren't sure whether or not I would do it well and when I checked it in and they were really happy with it you could audibly hear the surprise in my editor's voice she said this is really great (laughs) (laughs) but I mean if you count the hours that I worked on that first big feature and calculate my hourly rate I shudder to think I mean I, I worked for weeks on that thing I have 20 page transcripts of the interviews with every um and uh transcribed. I was so thorough. I interviewed far too many people. I took it really seriously. And I was kind of able to do that because I had this television stuff going on in the meantime that meant if I was being very poorly paid per hour for the writing, it wasn't the only thing that I was doing. And I guess I've kind of always had this career where I'm doing a bunch of stuff all at once. And the stage that I'm at now in my career is the same sort of thing that I have writing and I have broadcasting at a higher level than it was 10 years ago but it's the same thing of juggling all these things all together but it's the writing where I feel I'm really getting to be myself and getting to do the ideas that I really want to do. You mentioned something that I don't actually remember I'm sure I'm wrong about this but I don't remember discussing with anyone on this show before so I'd love to talk about it which is negotiating access in advance. Yeah. So how do you negotiate access in advance? And particularly in this point early in your career where you couldn't say, hey, I'm negotiating access, but this story is going to be in The Guardian or it's going to be here or there. Tell me how that works. I found that you can get access if you show that you've really engaged with people and done as much research as possible on them. And um, people are flattered by, here is somebody who not just, finds my situation interesting and my story interesting but has really bothered to take the time to try and work out where I'm coming from and so I would send people messages saying you know I'm researching a potential piece for the Guardian I think you know we could make a fascinating piece out of this and make it very clear that I've really done my homework on them and in fact that's something that I have discovered throughout my entire career now is that you can really have a superpower by if you really, really listen to people and engage with people, people respond very differently when they can tell that you've read their work all the way through or done a lot of searching and not just read the first couple of results on Google, because it's actually quite rare for people to do that. So I did that and it, it worked because I'd had, I mean, I had experiences earlier on in my career, many experiences where I had really good original ideas 
that I pitched and they were stolen. So they were not commissioned from me, but they were given to a staffer. And sometimes these were quite off the wall ideas that clearly they couldn't have found anywhere except from me. And I was very hurt by that. And clearly that happens a lot. But then my defence against it was, OK, I'm now going to come with ideas that have me intrinsically attached because I've got the access. So again, the way I managed to do it was by doing a little bit too much prep and it being, I mean, flattering is the wrong word, but it would reassure my interviewees that I was really going to listen to them because I'd taken the time to listen to them already. Has that gotten easier now that you can both show a history of high quality work you've done and the potential that the story is going to land somewhere big where a lot of people are going to read it? It's much easier now. I mean, also the range of stories that I've covered, because I write on, a, you know, I cover a very large number of topics. There's always something that I've covered in the past that will be relevant. And I can make it clear that the things that I produce are substantial, that they're nuanced, they're done in a thoughtful way. Because quite often the subjects that I am interested in are quite sensational subjects. And so I'm approaching people who've quite often had bad experiences with journalists and to be able to show that, yes, I do do these big sensational ideas, but I do them in a thoughtful way. And here's a bunch of articles to show you how I do them. It really does help. And particularly when you're getting access to institutions, like I've done quite a few crime stories and I've interviewed the police a lot in the past. And it really helps to show the way that I've dealt with police interviews in previous pieces because they see that, you know, I'm really listening and not just, you know, giving them a couple of sentences here and there. Yeah, I was going to ask about the true crime reporting you've done, because when you described the negotiating access and and showing how much you've researched in advance, I can definitely see how that maps in a piece like you wrote a piece about uh, people who make sex robots. And those are people who Mm -hmm. are clearly struggling to be taken seriously and struggling to have the world understand what they're doing. They kind of have a, a reason to want to get a message out. But in some of these crime stories, I would think that the access you're negotiating is often with uh, the families of murder victims and other people who don't really have that kind of relationship to the story where they're actually eager for someone to write a story about them. So in those situations, how do you convince people to talk to you? With those true crime stories, I generally start by approaching the police Mm. because I'm interested in cases that are difficult to bring to prosecution. And if you approach the police after they've just had a successful prosecution, quite often they really do want to talk to you about it because it's a great success for them. And then I try and negotiate access to families through the police. Even if I can find uh, contact details independently, I try and go through the police initially anyway, because that's the way to do it sensitively. But if the family don't want to talk to me, I will make a kind of clear case that I'm going to do it in a sensitive way and that it's really important for me to know who, for example, if the crime is a murder, who the murder victim was and what he or she was like. But then I don't push it very hard. I don't want to interview people against their will, and particularly not bereaved people. And I've had a number of... In fact, I had one piece that I wrote that came out last year about an eight-year-old woman who was murdered on her allotment by somebody else who was also an allotment owner. 
And it was this very kind of British thing of being very proud of your allotment. And there are huge tensions between people on allotments when there are disagreements. And this world of allotments became this microcosm, this mini community. And there was a mini war that had happened that meant that this man killed this woman and her family. Her son had agreed to talk to me, but her daughter didn't want to talk to me. And in the end, it was clearly causing problems within the family that he was going to talk to me. So they decided as a family, they weren't going to give any interviews about it. And I met with them and spoke to them. But, you know, I don't want to push something that was clearly already, you know, it's incredibly painful for them. And I, I, I want people to, because I take up a lot of people's time, I want them to be happy that they're doing it. So I didn't put any pressure on them at all. And then when the piece came out, they contacted me and said that they were really happy with how it was. And they were, you know, that really, really meant a lot to me that they liked the piece, even though they didn't want to be in it. So, but the thing is with these crime stories is you do need to build up a picture who of who people are. You don't necessarily have to talk to bereaved relatives to build up that picture, as long as you have some voices in the piece that can do that. What attracts you to the specific types of crime stories that you cover? Um, there's that story about the allotments, which I needed like a, a special guide to it because I had no idea how big the allotments were. Uh, in, uh, in Brooklyn, the community gardens are like uh, one meter by one meter is how much you got. When I read that the people had sheds on them, I was like, oh, these allotments must be huge. Um, but mm. there's that piece. Um, you also wrote about a couple who had one of their parents buried in their yard for over a decade. They're not exactly high stakes crime cases. Um, they're not, was there a crime and who committed it? And it's more why? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess with those kinds of stories, I am drawn to things that seem quite extreme but have something that all of us could take away from them. So the couple they said there was a couple who murdered both of her parents, buried them in their backyard, in the parents' backyard, and made it look like the parents were alive for 15 years, during which time they collected all their benefit money and their pension money, which they used to fund a, a spending problem, a shopping problem. One of them was, a, the woman was addicted to buying Hollywood memorabilia, signed pictures of Gary Cooper, Frank Sinatra stamps. She was compulsively buying this stuff and using this money that she was claiming in her parents' name from it. And so obviously this sounds like a, a very kind of weird, quirky story. But for me, the actual story was about talking to the neighbours and seeing how can you be living next to somebody for 15 years who's dead without realising that this has happened and it was the story in many ways was about recluses because the couple who were killed were recluses, but also the couple who killed them were also recluses who stayed at home with their memorabilia. And it was about um, how anonymous the world that we live in is now and how, you know, you can get away with this kind of thing and nobody would notice. And again, with the allotment story, it's about how we all function in in communities, in societies, and how we all feel like we are masters of our own domain, I guess, and how using this allotments, they, they are quite large. And it looks like, um, you know, the way that those allotments are arranged, that you have your allotment and you have the shed at the end of the allotment. So it looks like a house with a, a front yard. And there are these kind of miniature worlds and how these disputes 
can bubble over. So effectively, that was a story about politics, I guess, in this miniature society. And quite often, because I've written a lot of these now, and sometimes I, I find the stories myself and sometimes I'm asked to write them, I never really write true crime stories that are sensational and salacious for the sake of it. There has to be something wider and some kind of broader takeaway that you can get from it in order for it to be a satisfying thing for me. They strike me as pretty difficult stories to tell. Like in the case of those reclusives, you have no Facebook page to see what people are up to. There isn't really almost any record of the lives that these people lived. So when you're starting in a position like that, where you know it's going to be an uphill battle, even to get tiny details about the people you're covering, what are strategies you have to bring them to life? I go to places, uh, you know, I stand there and talk to people's neighbours. You know, with the story about the recluses, I went to the corner shop, the local store where they would buy their groceries and asked the person behind the counter what they were like. And she was able to tell me quite a lot. She's like, oh, yes, I remember him. He was on the front of the paper. And and yet, you know, he always used to come in and he would always, you know, he bought this beer once a week. And you know, those are little things, but they're a place to start. And sometimes, you know, the fact that the neighbours never noticed them and lived next door to them for 20 years is telling in and of itself. But yeah, old fashioned shoe leather is a way to start. I feel like I could um, more or less divide your, at least your print reporting into stuff in that true crime realm and then broad stories that take on a emergent real life phenomenon that both sort of tells you about the phenomenon and a specific story of people who are living in that world. Uh, You've written about uh, the world of people who make sex robots uh, you wrote what I think is one of the more comprehensive articles about revenge porn that I've read. Mm. And I, I'm curious when you take on topics like that, that are not particularly well known to most people, but there is an intensity within the lives of the people who've been affected by them or working within them. Like, how do you go about putting those stories together? Maybe we could start with the sex robot story. So you've got like... <laughs> I think two or three of the biggest sex robot makers in the world profiled in it. And then you've also talking to people who are anti-sex robot. Tell me about how a story like that comes together. So that story began, like lots of stories do, when I saw it being done elsewhere in what I thought was the wrong way, which was I saw a news story about the campaign against sex robots this British campaign, this British academic who was starting this campaign against sex robots. And my first thought was like, whoa, what about the actual sex robots? Who is actually making them? Where are they being made? How can you get access to them? And Abyss Creations, who make these hyper-realistic sex dolls, there had been a documentary on British TV about them in 2007, which I had remembered because they're amazing things, these sex dolls. They're very, very realistic, but also kind of totally not in that they look very human, but they have the proportions of, uh, you know, surgically enhanced porn stars. So they're real and not real. So I'd remembered that these dolls exist and started trying to get access to the people who are putting animatronics and AI into these dolls, but it took a very long time. And in the process of doing it, I looked up all the other people who were doing it or claimed they were doing it. That's the interesting thing. 
There are people who say they're making sex robots, but in fact are not and are just doing it in order to make money for pre-orders or are doing it in order to get attention from journalists. And quite often, this is the, the thing, quite often when journalists are happy to do a phone interview, you know, there is a particular, I'm not going to name him, but there is a particular sex robot manufacturer, someone who says he manufactures sex robots, who gives a lot of interviews, but nobody has seen his robot since 2010. And he agreed to talk to me on the phone. And then I said, you know, I'd love to come and meet you. Um, and he was like, well, you know, my, my robot is at a very uh, sensitive stage of research and development at the moment. I'm not sure you could see it. And eventually I said to him after, I think we sent, we exchanged 38 emails. And I said, you know, I will come to a time and place of your choosing anywhere in the world with or without your robot. And then I got kind of tumbleweed because he didn't really have anything to show me. But anyway, negotiating access takes a long time. So... Whilst I was trying to get access to Real Doll, who are the people who are at the forefront of making sex robots, I was also trying to get access to anybody else that I could and, and sending as many emails as possible out into the ether, which worked out well for me because that, that article became the beginning of, of the book that I've written where I got, to, I got to speak to, I spoke to sex robot manufacturers in China and in Spain, and it was able to build up a picture of a much more global quest to create the perfect partner. How would you describe the tone with which you write about uh, sex robot manufacturers in that story? <laughs> How would I describe it? That is a good question. I'm quite, it's quite dry. Um, I am, there is a slight raised eyebrow, but perhaps not as much as I have in real life in person. I find when I write, it's quite difficult to, I don't naturally put myself into my writing. I like to get a lot of detail. And part of this also comes from, I wrote that sex robot piece in the Guardian's, uh, the long read section. And I think something that writers don't say enough, or maybe they do say this enough, but I haven't heard it enough. You learn how to write from working with really, really good editors. And the editors that I've worked with at the Guardian are unbelievably good. And at the time, it might seem quite annoying to have them ask for such specific points of detail, but you realise that in getting the detail, that that is what makes it really shine. So when I was writing about sex robots, I had to collect an enormous amount of data. You know, there are 42 different styles of nipple in this sex doll factory. There are 14 different styles of labia. You know, I wrote down the names of many of the different styles of nipple and labia and, and, and all of the rest of it. And even then, I mean, when I checked in my piece originally to my editor and I was describing the, the workshop where they work on the robot and I described, you know, the varnish wooden worktops and she came back with a comment saying, what kind of wood? What wood was it? And I just sort of, I'd taken some photos and I was like, mm, it's pine, I think. You know, so it's that level of detail that they're constantly looking for, which at first, when you first get into it, you think, God, this is mad. But when you get used to doing the reporting with the idea that that amount of detail is what's necessary, it's those little things that allow you to, I'm able to strike the tone that I want by making points with huge amounts of detail. So if the point that I'm trying to make is in the future, you'll be able to have a partner that exists purely to please you, that is customizable and down to such exacting specifications as 42 different kinds of nipple. You can stipulate where you want each individual freckle on the body. That comes from just gathering a lot of detail there and being able to make the point through the details. One of the things I appreciated about that piece, and I generally appreciate about your writing when it comes to technology, is 
I think there's been such a conflict in the U.S. between the technology and uh, journalism industries that many, many reporters who cover technology are, are sort of very quick to jump into debunk mode. And yeah. certainly if you wanted to debunk this sex robot future that these people are peddling, it would be pretty easy. As you said, some of them may not even actually be building these robots. And many of the things that they're describing about what the robots are going to be able to do, uh, let's just say as a gambler, I'd probably gamble against them uh, realizing <laughs> some of these dreams. Um, but it does feel like you're willing to entertain their notion of the future, at least for, you know, 5,000 words and put yourself in the position of someone who has dedicated their life to building sex robots. I wonder like how you regard that. Like when someone says this is what the future is going to look like and your brain is going, I don't know. The raised eyebrow is actually a pretty good way of describing it. But how do you navigate that in your writing? The thing is, I do believe that these technologies, all of the technologies that I cover, I do, I wouldn't cover them if I didn't think they were ultimately going to exist one day. Mm. Whether or not the people making them now are going to be the people who make them is another question. And certainly a lot of the people I spoke to are not going to be the Steve Jobs of sex robots or, you know, any of the other technologies that I've looked at. But I'm only interested in them because, as you say, they're emerging phenomena that say something about the world that we're living in today because there's a demand for them and the world that we will be living in because something like this is going to exist. So I feel like I'm really lucky because I'm not a tech journalist. So I don't have to worry about maintaining relationships necessarily, going back to people again and again. And I can also not feel embarrassed by asking really basic questions like, you know, does this actually work? How is this a robot and not a mannequin with a speaker in its head? <laughs> you know, where would you keep one of these things? Well, really, really basic stuff. Always the most interesting answers come from those very basic questions. I think you have to take people seriously and then modify your judgment of them when they appear to be hiding things from you or being dishonest with you. Um, and that's what I do. So I always take people at face value at first and then um, change my opinion accordingly, uh, depending on what they say. Do most of these stories go the way you expect them to? Or like, do you find your thoughts are actually changing as you research them? I, I never end up where I think I'm going to end up because I never have an idea of where I'm going to end up. I, I always am, approach things as, you know, this is interesting. There's something here. I never know what that thing is until I'm there. And quite often, one of the things I love so much about writing is you're in the middle of doing an interview and you suddenly can hear the music of the entire piece because they say something that you know is going to go at the end and that's where you're going to land. So I'm always being surprised and I'm always kind of, I mean, with the sex robots thing, actually the conclusion that I came to, the beauty of it really was that I had kind of misunderstood what the campaign against sex robots was campaigning for. The campaign against sex robots, I thought it was saying that this kind of technology is going to erode our capacity for empathy because when you get used to having a relationship where all that matters is what one half of the partnership wants 
and what one half of the partnership is into and the and the robot is always going to agree with you and always laugh at your jokes unless you program it to not laugh at your jokes that that's going to make interactions between human beings a little bit harder i had thought that's what the campaign was saying and in fact it wasn't it was about objectification of women and children and it was about sort of it kind of was about that but i was lucky in that i had thought they were saying something that they weren't and it turned out nobody was saying that so it could be me that was saying that <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, I never really know where things are going to take me. But what I love about writing is that it's almost unintellectualized when the structure of a piece comes to me in a kind of instinctive way whilst I'm doing the reporting. Quite often when I'm doing the transcribing, which is so painful, I hate transcribing. And yet I find I have to do it all myself because that's where I get all of the ideas for structure I've tried printing it and uh, getting other people to do it. I still have to listen to the tape because that's where I get all of the ideas. And so it's something that is kind of automatic for me. I kind of all of a sudden I can see where the piece is going to be going whilst I'm doing the transcribing or sometimes in the middle of interviews. And it's not something that I have to force, but it's also not something that I ever really know from the beginning. How do you manage doing all these different pieces at once? It sounds like you're negotiating access for future pitches pitching things for future stories, producing things, some of which are like longer, like you did this podcast series about a fertility doctor. Some of these things are on a you know month-long timeline. I'm guessing something like that podcast is probably on a year-long timeline. Yeah, it, was, it was six months. That six months. Yeah. Oh, actually, pretty fast compared to some people have talked to me about doing a podcast series and getting totally overwhelmed by what it actually entails. But um, yeah, how do you balance all of that and, and schedule your life around it? I make loads of lists at the moment. I'm sitting here in front of, in fact, I wish you could see where I'm sitting because I am a very messy person. My desk is it's about six inches of papers and books all over my desk and different notebooks for different things. But I'm very organized when it comes to I have different lists of things to do, people to chase up, different schedules of when to chase people up for different things. What's your list making um, app of choice or are you a um, paper and pencil list maker? I use an A6 red hardback notebook exactly the same notebook I've been using since 2001. And when I finish the notebook, I write the date on the spine and I have about 400 of these notebooks downstairs in my, <laughs> my shelves. And I always use a purple pen. Yeah, it's very strange, but that's how I do it. And yeah, I don't, I don't use notes on my phone. I mean, I do use them, but not for these lists. And I'm constantly rewriting the lists. Um, I will always have a list of things to do and a list of people to chase. If I was to look at my list of people to chase now, there are some people who I originally initially contacted in December who still haven't come back to me with a definitive no about things. And at any given time, I'm probably working on seven or eight stories at different stages of development or reporting or transcribing or writing or editing. Does the differing uh, financial remuneration for these different kinds of work influence what you pursue, what you choose among those seven or eight to uh, do first? Well, I mean, I have found that with the writing, I have to be doing something else as well at the same time. So I have to be doing television stuff, things like that, that mean that I can keep all these balls in the air, I can mm. juggle all these balls. And for a long time, I thought I could never make a living out of writing until 
I did a few pieces that did very well and got syndicated. I've had a few pieces that um, have had the dramatic rights bought for them, which was a really good thing. But you can never count on that as a way of making a living. So, yeah, I I make sure that I've, um, you know, when I need money, I I go and do other work so that I can earn some. And at the moment, I have actually, for the first time in my life, I've got an actual job. I've got a regular job, which is the Times newspaper in London has launched a radio station. And I've got a job as the breakfast host at the weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And part of the reason why I took that job is I thought, okay, that means that I'll be able to write on Monday to Thursday and do all of this and and not have to always worry about where my next paycheck is coming from. What's your radio persona like? What's on your radio (laughs) show? Um, It's quite eclectic. I mean, the good thing about this particular radio show is it's supposed to be, the station is meant to be a kind of warm nice place where there's a space for expertise where we interview people for maybe 10 or 15 minutes which is unusual uh for a breakfast show certainly but on the radio uh we don't tend to do longer interviews and i guess in an age where i don't know if this traveled across the atlantic during the brexit negotiations here a senior government minister during an interview very famously said somebody put some statistics to him from a think tank and he said um you know i think we can all agree we've had enough of experts So we've been living in this era where we've had enough of experts. This is Michael Gove. He's a very senior member of the cabinet. And I think that scared a lot of people in this country and abroad. And I think Times Radio is is perhaps reclaiming the world of expertise. So we do a lot of interviews with intelligent people, the sort of thing where, yeah, I mean, I guess our, our key audience is people who would listen to a podcast and go into work and sound more informed about something rather than the kind of radio show where you are listening into angry callers or two different diametrically opposed people having a fight. There's none of that on the station. How do you pick up these skills so quickly? Like uh, when I think of, um, you know, hosting a radio show, producing a reported podcast, uh, you've also done a lot of video work. Uh, you were a correspondent for Vice News Tonight, uh, which was on HBO. Each of these feel like both that they require their own skill set. And even to tell the same kind of a story across all of these different formats, you actually have to do very different things. How has it been like trying to do the same thing in lots of different mediums? Well, I mean, I started the TV stuff alongside the print stuff. It was always two jobs that I did simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And I got the fulfillment from doing the print stuff. I was doing the stories that I really wanted to do. And I learned a lot with the television reporting. Perhaps the most important thing that I learned was how to think in scenes and how when you've got an idea for a a concept, a phenomenon, you must be always be thinking about narrative, characters, actuality. How are you going to make a point visually? And I think the articles I write are all very visual. Quite often, the opening, there's, you can also almost imagine the camera shot of it, that, you know, we open on an allotment in the middle of London and this is what it looks like. Or, you know, the article I wrote about the couple who killed her parents and spent the money on memorabilia began with, you know, in the vaults of Nottingham Police, there is a box full of Hollywood memorabilia sort of describing it all because I'm always thinking visually. So they do feed into each other. And it's helped me so much with 
interviewing because like if you're a tv journalist you can't ask long rambling questions they don't work so you have to ask very clean questions and you also have to assume that anything you ask is going to be broadcast so that means you have to ask questions in a way that you'd be proud of everybody hearing how you you know that you you can't suck up to people you can't caveat things too much you have to be really bold in your questions and you have to make sure that the way that you ask your questions is the way that you you'd be happy for your audience to hear you asking those questions and that's translated into my print work that I I never pretend to agree with people when I don't I don't ask long rambling questions and I'm always as direct as possible and that's worked out really well for me in print things I think Doing a, a radio show with experts uh, three days a week, I'm, I'm guessing you don't get um, all of the prep time that you'd like yeah. to immerse yes. yourself in their work. So what advice would you have to someone like interviewing an expert um, who wants to get to an interesting place with them, but maybe doesn't have this, the foothold that you'd want? It's really something that I struggle with. That is the thing that I found hardest in this job, especially as somebody who's used to doing all of my research, having to rely on producers. And I work with some really good producers, but having to trust them to give me a brief that is as thorough as I would have written for myself, that's very hard. The advice that I would give is to not try and cover everything. It's better to cover one thing in a really illuminating way than to try and explore every single aspect of a topic in a really superficial way. So if there's one thing that particularly interests you or fascinates you, if there's just one question that you want to ask, do as much research as you can on that one question and you'll end up with a much more illuminating interview than something that is a kind of precy of their entire field because anyone can do that. But yeah, I, I, that's the thing I found hardest about the radio show because we're doing it. I'm on air four hours a day, three days a week. And it's led by the news agenda. It's just not possible to do the kind of preparation that, that I'd want to do. So it's about picking your topics rather than um, trying to do everything in the time that you have. When I look at the careers of um, British journalists who are doing stuff similar to you, I'm always struck by how many times the word BBC appears yes. in their rem resume somewhere. You know, whether it's their job now or it's where they got their start or it's just almost impossible to not cross the BBC's path. What do you think the effect of a state backed broadcaster being a stopover in almost everyone's experience has on the whole climate of reporting? It's really interesting you say that. Yeah, practically everybody's worked for the BBC. I've worked for the BBC and anyone who's ever had any training has it through the BBC because the BBC are the only people who will provide you with training. And, you know, I learned some amazing things when I was there. I was very young. I had some contracts working on some TV programs as an assistant producer and learned some really important things about how to be a good reporter, like never write derogatory things in emails because they could all be disclosed in court. Never doodle in your notebook and write mean comments about anyone in your notebook because they could all be disclosed in court. Things like that as a kind of belt and braces approach, which was really good to learn young about professionalism and how to be a good journalist. I am a great supporter of the BBC. It trains all the good journalists in this country. And by that, I don't mean BBC journalists. I mean all journalists, as you've rightly pointed out. But the BBC is not impartial. It has a particular kind of world view. It tries to be impartial, but by definition, 
public service broadcasting attracts a certain kind of person with a certain kind of view on the world and how the world should work. I think it is a tremendously good thing. It's a real shame that the BBC is facing such of a funding crisis and also that the BBC is beginning to not be able to compete. We're all now in the UK watching, you know, Netflix and Apple TV and Amazon and um, we're all watching the same stuff as you are. And there is a fear within the UK that some of our Britishness is going to be eroded because everybody will be watching American stuff all the time. Uh, So I think the BBC is incredibly important. It has its limitations. We need to do whatever we can to continue for, for it to be allowed to continue because, you know, nobody pays for journalists to learn how to use a camera or nobody provides masterclasses where veteran reporters teach you basic stuff about note keeping or, or things like that. And, you know, I haven't had long stints at the BBC, but I had this freelancer's mentality when I was there and I went to every training thing that I could and I have reams of notes that I took when I was there. And everything I learned there has stood me in such good stead. I'm incredibly grateful. The way you describe it, it almost sort of serves as a uh, free or even paid journalism school uh, for Absolutely. a lot of people. One thing that, that caught me in what you were when you were talking about the BBC, as you said, it attracts a certain kind of person. And I think that's been an accusation leveled at the New York Times, which is, I guess, probably the closest American corollary to the BBC, though completely different. Like there's an issue right now with the idea of objectivity within not just the New York Times, but the entire uh, world of journalism. I wonder, like, does that stuff even cause a ripple in the UK? Are people watching it? Is that same debate happening in newsrooms? Certainly in the BBC has a lot of critics and there are a lot of other organisations that wants the BBC to fail. So the BBC gets criticised for not being sufficiently impartial or for assuming a certain default view as objective when it isn't. So there's a lot of scrutiny of the BBC's language. Is it going to describe Black Lives Matter protests as peaceful or not? And if it's going to say that there have been outbreaks of violence, how much does it put it in context of that most of the protests are peaceful? Or all the business about the statues, is this an act of vandalism or is this an act of protest? And they have to be very careful about language. The BBC has a lot of critics and a lot of people who want to see it fail. And it gets attacked for being to pro-Brexit, to anti-Brexit, you know, f- from all sides. So um, that probably means it's it's doing okay if it's annoying everybody in equal measure. Uh, but sometimes I think the BBC is hamstrung by it and can't... The, the reporting on the BBC could have more impact if they weren't being so careful about language. Um, we don't have... I mean, our newspapers here, I think we've kind of got the inverse of what you have in America. In America, you have broadcasters don't have to be impartial, but you expect a lot of objectivity in your newspapers. In the UK, we know the political leanings of all of the newspapers and almost expect that to be injected in a lot of the reporting that we read. But we expect our television broadcasting to be completely impartial. I mean, there's a broadcasting code that says it has to be impartial. So if you want objectivity, you're supposed to watch the television or listen to the radio. Whereas if you want something with a bit more flavor of opinion, you get it from newspaper reporting. 
And you have um, now taken a bunch of the reporting you've done over the years, and you have the book's not out. Book is coming out shortly. The book is coming out in the U.S. in September, September first. It's out in the U.K. Came out last week. Did you modify the pieces for the book, or are they as they were in print? Oh, they're all modified and developed and they have, uh, you know, they've been taken in different directions. The book is called Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. So it's in four sections and the sex section is clearly about sex robots. The death section is about the perfect death euthanasia machines. And that's based on quite a lot of reporting that I did uh, for The Guardian, but also some reporting that I did for the BBC that in the end never went out. The food section is about lab-grown meat, and that was all original reporting, as is the birth section, which is about artificial wombs. What would happen if you could have a baby without anyone being pregnant? So, I mean, even the, the... And I think of them as scenes, but even the scenes in the book that were originally in my Guardian long read about sex robots are different. They are told in a different way. There are conventions of how you're supposed to write in the Guardian long read section, and everything has to be in the past tense and in a certain way. And this is much more, it's in the present tense. It's much more kind of reportage in, in a, it's much more kind of active. In fact, it feels a lot more like a documentary, I guess. And I speak to a lot more people and come to some deeper conclusions, I think. But um, of all the things I've done, and I've done a lot of different things in my life, writing this book was without a doubt the most fulfilling joyful thing I've ever done and you know I was expecting when I finished writing it and put the last full stop to just want to go out and have a party but actually when the time came I was really sad I was really sad when the writing process had finished because it was just such a privilege to get to immerse myself in these fascinating topics and also be given the license to just write it in exactly my voice exactly how I wanted to write it and that I really mourned it when it was finished. Jenny thank you so much for this interview. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Long Form. This is Max. Aaron is uh, without power somewhere in a field. Uh, but that was his interview with Jenny Kleeman. Her new book is called Sex, Robots, and Vegan Meat. Go check it out. And uh, thanks so much. To her for coming on the show. Thanks to Aaron for doing the interview. Thanks to our other co-host, Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Julianne Parker. Thanks to them. Thanks to MailChimp, who's doing an incredible thing right now. Buy the books. It's a virtual book festival. We did a podcast as part of it. Go check it out. It's at MailChimp.com slash presents. And uh, we'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. 
Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.